Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to podcast episode 20, where we're going to be discussing carotid stenosis. My name is Kay Hoppy. For those of you that have not joined me for a podcast prior to now, I encourage you to go back through the other 19 podcasts in preparation for taking the CCRN review. So we're taking a step-by-step, system-by-system approach to preparing to take the CCRN exam. Thank you for those of you that have been in previous podcasts, that have listened to previous podcasts. Thank you for coming back and joining me again. Just a couple of uh, announcements before we get started. First of all, I want to announce my CCRN Review online program, which I'm targeting to have available January of 2022. And this is for purchase and there will be continuing education hours involved in this as well. And so this is a nice online program complete with Uh, slides and illustrations and a mock exam at the end. So it allows you to progress at your own pace um, in this program and also be awarded continuing education hours. So this is actually modeled after my two-day CCRN review. I'd also like to um, tell you guys about my Facebook page where I am doing a daily CCRN question. I'm calling it, you know, CCRN question of the day. And I put out the question of the day in the morning and then come back and answer that question later on in the evening. So that allows everybody time to respond to the question, including which option Um, of the multiple choice questions that they would uh, choose. And then later on in the evening, as I said, I come back with the answer along with rationale. Please remember to also follow me on my uh, website. My website is khoppypresents.com. And if you, your facility or your nursing group is interested in having me come to present the CCRN Uh, review course or any other critical care related course, please contact me at khoppypresents.com. I would love to provide this to you uh, either in person or via the web. So without further ado, let's get into our content for today. And we're going to be talking about carotid stenosis. 
So first of all, this is really an etiology that's very similar to all the etiologies that are behind the formation of coronary artery disease and risk factors for coronary artery disease. So the same thing that's developing atherosclerotic plaque in the coronary arteries is also pretty much uh, developing atherosclerotic plaque in other vessels in your body. So we're talking about carotid arteries. We're talking about the aorta, the iliacs, the femorals, the renals, you name it. So the same etiologies that are appropriate for the development of coronary artery disease are also appropriate for the development of carotid stenosis. There also could be a uh, trauma-related cause. The patient also could have fibromuscular dysplasia, which is very rare, uh, where that patient is predisposed to narrowing of the body's arteries, as well as the formation of aneurysms. Patient also could develop uh, carotid stenosis as a result of cervical radiation or inflammation. So carotid stenosis, keep in mind, is the cause of about 15 to 25% of the strokes that we deal with clinically. So as a general rule, in terms of clinical presentation, the patient is typically asymptomatic until they have TIA or stroke-like symptoms. So we have the patient that presents with things like visual changes, diplopia, memory loss, vertigo, or syncope, or any combination thereof. The patient might have a bruy or a thrill over one or both carotid arteries. Now, remember guys, when you're listening for a bruy, you want to start at the base of the carotid. So down by the clavicle and work your way up toward the mandible. And so a bruy again is that shh, shh, shh sound that is produced as turbulent flow passes through a narrowed area. It's low pitched, so you would use the bell of your stethoscope. You're probably not going to hear it all that well unless you have the patient hold their breath. Otherwise, all you're going to hear is the (sighs) as the patient's breathing. Now keep the carotid anatomy in mind here, because when you think about the, the carotid artery, you have the common carotid, which then bifurcates into the internal and external carotid. So the internal carotid goes up and feeds flow to the brain, whereas the external carotid goes up and feeds flow to the face. And so think about it going up as one singular common carotid, which then bifurcates into two branches, the internal and the external carotid. Now, why am I even bringing this up? And why is this even important? Keep in mind that when we talked about atherosclerotic plaque, we said plaque most often occurs at major vessel bifurcations. When we talked about the coronary arteries of the heart, we said that the left main bifurcating into the LAD and the circumflex, that is a major vessel bifurcation. So we see a lot of plaque development at that bifurcation. The same thing goes for the common carotid bifurcating into the internal and external branch. And so that's why it is, guys, if you're listening 
and you hear a brewery, let's say down closer to the clavicle, it most likely involves the common carotid. Whereas if that brewery occurs more at closer, I should say, to the mandible, then you're probably listening to a brewery that involves the external carotid. So I want you to think about this for a second, think it through and ask yourself, which of the two types of breweries, let's say I heard over on the right side, I heard a brewery that was located down closer to the clavicle, whereas over on the left side, I heard that shh, shh, brewery sound located closer to the mandible. So the question is, which of those two breweries is going to possibly result in the most devastating stroke? Well, of course, it's the one that's down closer to the clavicle because the closer you are to the clavicle, the more likely it is that that brewery comes from the common carotid, which feeds flow both into the internal and external branches. Whereas if you hear that brewery real close to the mandible, then yes, you can still have a stroke, but the stroke wouldn't be as devastating as the one that covers or involves the common carotid because that would wipe out flow through both the internal and external carotid arteries. So you can have a patient then that comes in with signs and symptoms of TIA and stroke, slurred speech, for example, aphasia, ataxia, paresis or plesia involving one side or the other, or a level of consciousness change. We see that very commonly in patients coming in with either TIA or stroke. Now, what are our treatment measures? Well, it kind of all depends upon how the patient presents. So I'm just going to go through several of the different treatment measures and we'll just kind of go one by one. Now, again, if the patient is coming in with stroke-like symptoms, then this is going to be discussed in the future when we get uh, into talking about acute ischemic stroke. So I'm not going to get into the thrombolytic therapy and all of those things for acute ischemic stroke at this point. That will be coming up a bit later when we talk about the neuro section of the CCRN exam. So what kinds of things might we see used? Well, first of all, we have the antiplatelet family. So preventing those platelets from clumping. So just recall what we talked about in the cardiovascular section when we talked about cardiac disease and plaque, and when the plaque cracks, we have, or becomes unstable, I should say, we have the platelet plug coming. Same thing with carotid stenosis. Again, if atheroma is the cause, we can have platelets attaching to the atheroma causing acute occlusion of the carotid artery. So antiplatelet drugs, whether we're talking about aspirin, for example, or clopidogrel, those are a couple of examples. We may also see patients that are on agents that increase the flexibility of red blood cells. This would include drugs like pentoxifiline, which is also known as Trental. So it makes the, the red blood cells more flexible and pliable and 
able to squeeze through narrowed areas better. Also, anticoagulation. So, for example, in patients with atrial fibrillation, uh, warfarin can be used. It's very commonly used in atrial fibrillation patients and certainly in patients with mechanical prosthetic heart valves. And as a general rule there, uh, we try to keep the INR somewhere around 2.5. Antihypertensives may also be indicated and very commonly are. We know that antihypertensives or I should say hypertension, is one of the leading causes of atherosclerotic heart disease as well as vascular disease throughout the body. Maybe the patient will need to have a carotid endarterectomy. So in this situation, we're getting in there and removing the plaque from the carotid bifurcation. So um, typically, we're talking about somebody that has an occlusion of at least 70%, or greater of the internal carotid artery. For patients who are not surgical candidates, there's also that possibility of getting in there and stenting the carotid. So particularly an important option for those patients that are at high surgical risk. So let's talk a little bit about management of a patient post-carotid endarterectomy because this is where you're most likely to encounter a question on either the CCRN or the PCCN exam. So it's obvious that airway ventilation and oxygenation are important components of post-op management, keeping the head of bed elevated, uh, 30 degrees. We want to make sure that the patient stays NPO until the gag, re uh, gag reflex returns. We also want to be aware that we could have some very rapid acute airway compromise. So we want to have equipment available in case we need to do an emergent cricothyroidotomy, tracheostomy. You want to make sure that there's adequate suction immediately available functional, and ready to go. We want to look at that site and assess very frequently for the presence of edema, hematoma. Is there tracheal deviation? Does the patient have difficulty swallowing? Those are all clinical indicators that may tell you that the patient is walking down the path to trouble and can have acute airway compromise as a result. We'll also want to make sure that we have their blood pressure in check. And what that means is we want to stay within 20 millimeters of mercury of the patient's preoperative value. We don't want the patient to have elevated blood pressure, which then is going to put a lot of stress and strain on the suture line, not to mention the possibility or increased possibility for stroke. So we want to watch for changes in cerebral perfusion, and those are manifested by things like level of consciousness change. So monitor that LOC, pupillary changes, new onset of paresis or plesia, visual changes, difficulty speaking, you know, is the patient experiencing dysphagia or aphasia, seizures, or headache. So that's all part of our assessment of cerebral perfusion. 
Now, in addition to that, we have some cranial nerves that fit into this as well. Let's start out with cranial nerve number seven. Now we're going to have the patient smile to look for symmetry. Cranial nerves nine and 10, they work together having to do with swallowing and speech and gag reflex. Cranial nerve number 11, asking the patient to shrug their shoulders against your hand's resistance to see if there's asymmetry there. And then last but not least, the one that we're very used to with patients with carotid surgery is cranial nerve number 12, which is the hypoglossal. Now there, we're going to ask the patient to stick out their tongue. And we're looking for, of course, midline position of the tongue. The one thing I want you to keep in mind is that it can be pretty common. In fact, patients are told about this pre-op that they may have uh, problems with their tongue. In other words, being able to move their tongue normally for up to two weeks after surgery. So if the patient sticks out their tongue and the tongue deviates toward the operative side, that is considered just an effect of surgery, an effect of swelling. And that's simply because after the incision is made and the retractors are in place, there can be some inflammation of the hypoglossal nerve, which causes the tongue then to deviate toward the operative side after surgery. Now, if the tongue deviates toward the opposite side or the contralateral side of the surgery, now we're concerned because now we might be dealing with a patient that has stroke during surgery. So we're looking then to see if that correlates with other things like facial droop and paresis and plesia on that side. In other words, the side contralateral or opposite to the surgical side. For the laryngeal nerve, we're going to check speech. For the auricular nerve, we're going to check the patient's sensation on the face and ear. So those are some common assessments postoperatively in assessing neurologic and cranial nerve function. Also monitoring the patient very closely for hemorrhage and hematoma. And so this can get the patient in trouble pretty rapidly in terms of airway management. And so watching for um, hemorrhage, watch your dressings, check your dressings, mark your drainage, uh, how much is, is coming out into the drain, and then checking your H and H and just looking at if the patient is having airway compromise in any way, if the patient res- is responding to you that they're having difficulty breathing or difficulty moving air. You could have a hematoma palpate around the area to see if there's any uh, blood accumulation that is creating a hematoma because that can lead pretty rapidly to some airway compromise. So guys, this is it for our time together talking about carotid stenosis and the things that we do in order to treat somebody postoperatively for carotid endarterectomy. Your most likely questions on the CCRN or PCCN will have to do with blood pressure management 
as well as monitoring the site of surgery for hematoma and bleeding and airway compromise. Those are the big things along with the hypoglossal nerve and movement of the tongue and what is a surgical potential that is movement toward the operative side versus a patient that stroke during surgery where the tongue would move opposite to the operative side. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you'll join me for podcast 21. And if you haven't listened to other episodes, you will find all of my episodes listed on my website. Please come and visit me and subscribe. I do have a free uh, basic rhythm cheat sheet that um, if you would like, just head over to my website, khoppypresents.com. And you can sign up uh, to be on our email list and receive that free basic dysrhythmia cheat sheet. Thank you so much for joining me today and have a blessed day. Bye-bye.